typically we say that we're processors and packers of plant-based oils because it kind of covers a whole array of different things. Because when you look at some of our like customer base, it's not necessarily all customers using it solely for cooking. Um, but predominantly, yes. And I think people may connect better if you say cooking oils. Um, I'm perfectly open to either way. Yeah, I think if we just say plant-based oils, then people will be thinking like rubber trees and stuff like that, maybe, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll say mostly cooking. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're monetizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spirit.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain. But we're not talking about that today. Instead, we're talking to Stephen Basile, the Executive Vice President of Catania Oils, one of the nation's leading processors and packers of the highest quality plant-based oils in the country, mostly used for cooking. I just want to point that out right at the get-go. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we, we really appreciate your being on the show, Stephen. So thanks for joining us. Maybe, uh, maybe what we could do is start by talking a little bit about some of the oils that you guys are involved with. We carry a lot of different vegetable oils. So when you think of all the different oils that are available in the market, the standard ones being soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil. And then we handle a lot of different specialty oils, whether it's peanut oil, cottonseed oil, sunflower oils, and different varieties of those oils, safflower oil, different varieties of olive oil. So really just covering the whole array of different oils that derive from various different plants throughout the world. Gotcha. And what, what would you say is the most popular oil today? Yeah, the most popular oil is certainly soybean oil. And I only say that just by looking at the sheer demand of our customer base because it's low cost oil. But, you know, avocado oil, I would say is probably the one of the more hot oils over the past couple of years that continues to grow a double digit growth. And when you say hot, you don't mean spicy. You mean like, like people, the demand is very high for it. Correct. But, uh, you know, also it's a very high heat oil as well. So it's great for like high heat cooking and baking. Also, it's like very similar to like olive oil. So like olive oil is very healthy for you, high in monounsaturated fats, which is the good fats, lower in saturated fats. And when you look at avocado oil and olive oil and put them side by side from a chemical analysis, they're, they're very similar. Gotcha. Gotcha. You're definitely involved in the, the selling of the oils, but what about the processing? What, you know, what has to go on for the product to be ready for market? Yeah, so we're actually not a crusher and refiner. So we will import and partner with different crusher refiners from all around the world. Avocado oil, you know, predominantly Mexico, but also Spain has been planting more and more trees throughout the years, as well as other countries. Olive oil, you know, Spain is the largest producer in the world. They're about 50% of world production. But then when you talk about some of the other oils that we mentioned earlier, like soybean oil, it's mainly a domestic product. Canola oil, it's Canadian, right? But it's landmass. We're connected right to it. We're still able to bring in rail cars of canola oil into our facility, then break it down to smaller packages, retail packages, food service packages for your restaurants, as well as selling it into um, other manufacturers who are using oil as a raw material in their products. So like as an example, somebody who makes salad dressings or fries, potato chips, you know, think, think of some of the big CPG companies out there servicing many of those brands. So you guys are selling to restaurant and restaurant chains, to industrial uses and food makers? Is that sort of the scope? 
Yes, and retail. So retail, we we serve a lot of the private brands, retailers throughout the country. So whether it's like a big box national chain or even a smaller regional independent, we'll white label it, put their label right on the bottle for them. So, you know, one, one of the things that I was kind of thinking about in, in your business is it must have been a sort of a challenging few years coming through the pandemic with supply issues and everything like that. How did that impact you guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, the employees that we have here, I mean, jumping through hoops just to make sure that we had something at the store. But yeah, it was very difficult from a supply chain perspective, whether it was a raw material, specifically if it was a raw material that's imported, because that caused a lot of other challenges. But honestly, even like the primary packaging materials, right? So you're um, a cap, you know, some in, in all the lead times just got pushed out 2x, 3x, all the forecasting challenges. So, you know, you have a forecast from customers that were you know, very good. And when people aren't going out to eat, then you see the retail business just go crazy and trying to keep product on the shelf for your customer was was very difficult. But most customers collaborating with them, looking at like skew rationalization, can we eliminate this one smaller size and focus on these two sizes so we can increase our production output? And that really seemed to help early on in the pandemic. And the biggest thing was just really communicating with the customers, making sure that you guys are all on the same page. And they even had a lot of challenges just getting stuff to the shelf. We had some of the buyers who were literally in the stores stocking shelves. Right. And were they doing that because of like work, lack of people to help them with this shit, like, like sort of a lot of turnover and stuff like that? Turnover. And then honestly, just the COVID bug hitting everybody and then not having people available to put stuff uh, on the shelf early on in COVID. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. We've been talking with some manufacturers uh, who, you know, for lack of one part, their whole product line was shut down. They couldn't deliver any products. So it seemed like maybe with caps, you guys saw a little bit of that. Yep, absolutely. That happened to everybody. I don't think anybody got through COVID without having some type of supply chain or product issue. Now, how did it work from a customer perspective? I've been speaking to some people who basically decided that they couldn't take on any new customers during COVID and other companies that used it as a chance to really expand. How did you guys look at it? Yeah, it was really by oil because depending on what was available at that specific point in time, you know, there might have been upstream from our supplier base, they might have not been able to supply us with any more product. Therefore, we were not really able to bring in new business. And then to complicate things more with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation and Ukraine, you've heard the the statement that the bread basket, right? Are they the oil basket too? I didn't realize that. They are about 50% of world production of sunflower oil. So there was a major issue early on when that occurred. So you were saying, so so when Ukraine went offline, that whole market just kind of seized up? Is that what happened? Yep. Like conventional sunflower, organic sunflower specifically, we had some customers, some suppliers who went force majeure on some of the contracts that we had. So yeah, it, it was a significant ripple effect. And then, okay, if customers can't use sunflower oil as an example, and some customers are using sunflower oil because it's non-GMO, you're kind of limited to the other oils that you could flex over to. So a lot of collaboration and coaching with customers as far as, okay, some 
Amazon's not available right now. Here's some alternatives that we can help you with. Certainly that has forced a lot of customers to think about having flexibility on all of their ingredient statements on a go-forward basis. And then also diversification within your supplier supplier base, right? So in some cases that helps us, in some cases it hurts us. We certainly want to do everything that we can to maintain all of our supplier and customer relationships. So Yeah, no, it's a really tricky position because you're kind of in the middle of a lot of different things. A lot of people have been talking about supply chain agility, and it sounds like that was a balance that you guys were really going for. Definitely, definitely. But even though COVID was a big thing, I imagine it's always like that in the food industry, right? Because you're dependent upon the weather, upon harvests and so on as well. They all play a, a big part of it, you know, specifically the weather. You know, if you rewind to last year in Canada, specifically in August, there was major drought, which significantly impacted the canola crop about 33% um, less than it typically is. So canola prices soar, non-GMO canola prices soar to become pretty much not available. So then, you know, how do you navigate around those waters with customers when, you know, that's all that they have and that that's all that they use? You just got to really just talk about, well, here's the other oils that we have access to and here's why these oils may fit for your specific application. I remember I went to the store to buy some canola oil and I wound up coming home with like a coconut oil blend as a result, because it looked the same to me. I didn't even realize they were out of canola oil. That's a little different. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious for your your customers that are in the, the CPG, the consumer packaged good manufacturing space, are they as happy to switch inputs as some of the other customers? Because their products are a lot more specifically made, I would imagine. Every customer is different in that regard. I mean, sometimes the CPG companies, they move a lot slower than some of the smaller companies tend to be a lot more nimble. But in this situation that we were all facing, even those, you know, big companies were able to move rather quickly because, you know, anytime that you can't deliver them one of their production inputs, they're shutting the facility down and shutting the facility down is big dollars, right? So yeah, they moved pretty quickly even. Even for them. Okay, well, that's great to hear. I've been talking with a lot of people about sort of changing customer expectations. And and people have been saying things like, oh, it's the Amazon effect. Everybody expects everything to be right away. Everything, everybody expects everything to be returnable. How are you seeing that in your customer base? Yeah, definitely from our lead time used to be five days. And now it's, you know, 10 to 15 days, depending on this certain channel that we may be servicing. And all the customers certainly understand that because they're experiencing a lot of the same challenges on a lot of their production input costs. So going from that kind of more just-in-time model, I guess, to a model of supply security, I think is the best way to kind of frame it up. That's kind of been a shift. And certainly in the commodity market, which we're serving, a lot of price-conscious consumers have not necessarily not price conscious anymore, but price is becoming secondary to that of making sure that they have product available for their production, for their restaurant, for their shelves in the retail market. So you mentioned supply security, and I'm, I'm super interested in this topic. So does that mean that your customers are building up a bigger inventory position or they're just contracting with you for a guarantee share of what they need? Uh, yeah, it means the former, like they're, they're building up more inventory. Like right now, September 30th is a little bit early traditionally when customers are starting to build up their inventory for the holiday. They started building inventory a month ago. 
because they, they're just concerned that they're not going to have product available to stock their shelves for the busiest season of the year. And then in addition to that, because the lead times have moved out a bit, they're putting in more orders more frequently. I see. So are they putting in larger orders more frequently? I mean, that would be great, right? Is that? It, it is. But when you're forecasting your production and then all of a sudden the forecast is 30% over, it makes it very difficult from the operation, both from production inputs, from labor as well. If you've planned your production based on a specific forecast, and then all of a sudden you're coming in 30% over, you, you can't flip a switch overnight, right? You have to add a shift. How do you hire, train, and then retain those employees all along when the orders keep coming in, right? It's, you, you got to stay ahead of it. And when you, and you use a forecast to try to stay ahead of it, and then the forecast is, I mean, you're, you're overshooting the forecast. It's just not possible to, to maintain that, maintain that, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. And a lot of the like predictive analytic models, like it's really hard for them to take into account the changes that are happening because they're so unprecedented. I know that we're kind of looking at different methods of forecasting, but the summer is just traditionally slow. And the models, you know, for so many years have taken that into account. So is summer usually a slower season for you guys? So because we serve into a few different channels, right? So we sell into that manufacturing space, we sell into the retail space, and then we sell into the food service space. We may see one channel take a break while the other channel's picking up. Like in the summer, like we typically see our food service business pick up, but because of inflation, because of labor shortages, we didn't see the food service business pick up this year. We saw the retail channel continue to maintain that demand. So when you, when you start to think about next year's planning, speaking with a lot of people who are like, I just don't know how to plan. Everything is so up in the air. What's your perspective on that? I have the same exact answer. We have these conversations weekly, monthly, quarterly. Okay, what's you know the next 30, 60, 90 looking like? What's next year looking like? And when you're talking to the customers, every single customer gives me that same exact answer that you just said, Adam, every customer. So I guess we all just should plan for a lot of growth and then it'll just happen. I guess that's, that's the only advice I've got. If everybody's like, well, well, you know, we're worried about the economy or stuff like that. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. So, and are there other trends that you're seeing with your customers? Are they doing anything, you know, innovative that you've been starting to sniff out? No, not really, because they're not. Many of them right now, I mean, yes, there's still new product introductions, but the focus on new product introductions is not like it used to be pre-COVID because a lot of people are really just concerned about how are we going to take care of the customers and the items that we have today. So in a sense, like the focus on just taking care of today's business is maybe lowering the innovation a little bit. Is that what I'm hearing? New types of potato chips aren't being launched. I'm trying to figure out what the, the new products would be. It's a really good question. And I don't, I have not heard of many new items that are, that are getting launched at this time. Well, I wonder if the workforce issues have something to do with that as well, you know, because there's such a big drain on talent right now. A hundred percent. And I still try to figure that out, right? Because the COVID money's gone. Everywhere you go, everybody's looking for, for labor, for talent. Where did all these people go? I, I can't figure it out. Did people just leave the workforce completely? 
Well, from what I've been reading, so the, what the economists have been saying is that more people have been entering the workforce. I mean, people did come out of it. We've had a lot of issues with childcare. I don't know if you've seen this on your team. People with young kids, it's been hard to get nannies and daycare slots and stuff like that. So we've definitely had some people, you know, out as a result of that. But that seems to have kind of cleared itself up a little bit more. So I think people are back in the labor force. But yeah, I, I think for me, it seems like people have made a little bit of a mental shift and they really want to choose a profession or a job that they really love and not just kind of doing whatever comes by. So maybe that has something to do with it. I mean, certainly we, we're experiencing more challenges with the workforce and the operation more so than anywhere else. So production, skilled labor, warehouse, forklift operators, those positions seem to be the most challenging to hire, train, and retain them. And you're competing for those kind of positions with a lot of people now too. Yeah, Amazon. There you go. Exactly. I think the other trend that I've been kind of hearing a little bit about is if there's going to be more domestic United States production of material, that there's going to be more forklift job operators just to pick on one topic. And if people's supply chains are kind of brittle and they want to have more stuff locally, again, it drives the demand for those kind of employees. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously those challenges can become opportunities when you look at maybe some of the functions of the forklift that are repetitive. There's ways that you can automate that, right? With unmanned fork trucks or unmanned, just other ways to move products. Yeah, exactly. So again, take another page out of the Amazon playbook. I, I feel like when I talk with companies today, everybody either wants to be Amazon or Apple. It's like, I think, oh, you got to find your own thing, man. But I think automating the, a lot of the stuff that goes on in the distribution center could be a, a good way to go. 100% agree with that. All right. So we're, we're looking at the future and we're thinking, we don't know. So we got we to gotta figure out some way to, to improve on that. I guess we'll get working on that. Maybe there's something Spiro can do to help. Stephen, I just want to talk on another topic. I know that you're a family-owned business, uh, and that's a different work experience than most people. Have you always worked at Catania Oils, or do you have other not outside of the family experiences as well? I've always worked for the family business at a young age of 11 years old. My grandfather used to pick my and my younger brother up on the weekend, go to the plant, walk around, you'd have leaking product, change this, change that, clean this, clean that. And I always like to joke around because like back then we didn't know what we were doing. So I, I always say that he Miyagi'd me into the business, right? Yeah, that's awesome. My sense of talking with a lot of family owned businesses is that there is more of a family feel even to the employees and so on. Is that the case with you guys? Definitely, definitely. One of our core values, we are family. I mean, it's one of our most important core values. And we definitely do a lot of events around family, like coming up in, in a couple of months around Thanksgiving for the past 12, 13, 14 years. For some time, we've been doing a major turkey fry turkeys fried in peanut oil here. The family and the sales team, they get together and we'll fry 13, 14 turkeys up for the entire company, You know all the fixings, the stuffing, the mashed potatoes. And that's just one really great example of how we treat everybody here like family. That's awesome. I definitely would encourage people if they're thinking about looking for employment in the sector to look out for family owned businesses, because I think it's a, definitely a different feel. Uh, than, than some of the corporate owned ones at any rate. Yeah, totally. Well, Stephen, this is, this has been awesome. I'm really happy that you were able to make it onto the podcast today. Certainly learning a little bit about oils and the best ones for different circumstances. Uh, avocado oil. I got to look out for that. I've never used avocado oil, so I'll check it out. We'll have to send you some. 
Yeah, please send me some. I'd, I'd love to see some. But also from a business perspective, learning a little bit about how you guys dealt with the challenges in the supply chain. Super interesting. I, I wish that we didn't have to guess as much about the future, but I guess we'll see. I guess maybe we're always guessing. And we just thought that we knew something before. Maybe there's something to that as well. I don't know. But at any rate, it's, it's been really great to talk with you, talking about the family business. Really appreciate it. And just as a reminder, I want to let our listeners know that they can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at spiro.ai backslash podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And, you know, if you liked uh, what we were talking about today, maybe give us a thumbs up or a good review or something like that. Stephen, what do you think? Should they do something like that? Yeah, maybe some jumping jacks. Absolutely. I like that. Exactly. And some push-ups while you're at it. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, We're looking forward to seeing you on the next episode. 